This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, it seemed the U.S. and Iran had reached a deal to revive the 2015 nuclear deal, but now those negotiations have stalled. Then, more than 100,000 Americans died last year of drug overdoses, largely driven by fentanyl. And Mexican cartels using Chinese chemicals are the primary source. An expert explains why the problem is getting worse. And calculating the cost of carbon emissions. A group of researchers recently found the overall cost is more than three times what the government currently estimates. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. A revived Iran nuclear deal is now seeming more unlikely to be reached anytime soon. Jonathan Lord is a senior fellow and director of the Middle East Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. Jonathan, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So remind us of that original Iran nuclear deal and how effective was it before the U.S. pulled out? Certainly. Uh, the Iran nuclear deal, formerly known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA, uh, signed in 2015 during the Obama administration between the U.S., Iran, and a number of other nations, uh, was fairly effective. Uh, the deal was basically this. Uh, it controlled and throttled Iran's ability to produce nuclear material uh, in exchange for the lifting of certain sanctions, and it was working. And so what happened after the U.S. withdrew in 2018? Well, uh, President Trump uh, didn't like the deal. Uh, he campaigned on uh, tearing up the deal, uh, ultimately believing it was too weak. Uh, and when the U.S. withdrew, uh, the U.S. instituted unilater unilaterally a series of sanctions, uh, and Iran progressively began to uh, restore its nuclear capability and nuclear uh, material stockpile over time. So why is it important to revive that deal now? Uh, frankly, uh, we're in a period where uh, we have very little control on Iran's nuclear program. Uh, the maximum pressure campaign instituted by uh, the Trump administration really failed to constrain uh, the nuclear program uh, as uh, they would have liked. Uh, and so there's nothing really keeping Iran from pursuing a nuclear weapon uh, at this point. And have they continued to pursue nuclear weapons in, in the time since? Uh, they have worked uh, to put themselves in a, uh, in, in a position uh, to be able to break out towards a nuclear weapon by doing uh, high enrichment of uranium uh, and stockpiling that uranium uh, and continuing to develop their technology such that eventually they could, if they wanted to, build a nuclear weapon. So the U.S. and Iran have been, you know, going back and forth, of course, through the Europeans. They're not speaking directly. Um, any idea about what each side is really asking for? Sure. Um, I think the U.S. side uh, wants a simple return to the deal uh, as it was left. Uh, and it appears that the Iranians have put other conditions on their return. Uh, currently, I think... Additional from what was in the 2015 agreement. That is what is being reported. Um, there is an outstanding, an open case uh, being investigated by the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, looking at three instances where there was nuclear material in Iran in places where it shouldn't have been. 
And so that is an ongoing investigation. And the Iranians uh, want that either scrubbed or want that closed before the deal is re-implemented. Uh, and that is the major sticking point right now. Uh, the Europeans uh, recently uh, stated that uh, the deal doesn't look good as a result of this new condition. There's also this issue of, look, you can't come at a, at a later time, a later president, and just scrub it like you did last time. That's never going to happen. Right. I mean, that, that is a major concern. Uh, detractors, critics, opponents of the deal um, have made no secret uh, of their uh, opposition. And uh, should they regain the executive branch, uh, likely would scrap the deal. Um, I thought that would have been uh, a larger concern. Uh, the Iranians seem to have been concerned about that, but somehow seem to have moved past it through the negotiations. You know, Jonathan, there's been increased uh, U.S. military activity in the region. What's going on there? What impact will that have on negotiations? Uh, frankly, uh, I, I think they're sort of separate files, uh, particularly for the Iranians. Uh, the U.S. presence in Syria uh, has been to train and equip partners to uh, fight and defeat ISIS. Uh, that continues. Uh, that is contested territory. It's key territory. And there are groups that uh, are otherwise in the Iranian orbit uh, that like to do business uh, in that area. Uh, and they're going to keep pressure on the U.S. forces. They're, um, you know, speaking about now Israel, because they have a big issue with um, Iran and their possibility of getting a, a nuclear weapon. They've said that they will act to prevent Iran from becoming a nuclear state. What have they done in the past? What do you think they're willing to do? I mean, that's true. They're not a party to the agreement. Uh, in the past, uh, they have unilaterally attacked uh, nuclear facilities in Syria, for instance, uh, that were being developed reportedly by the North Koreans. Uh, and they have continued to uh, strike targets uh, that are Iranian military targets in Syria uh, that are otherwise in support of Hezbollah in Lebanon. Uh, the U.S. just agreed to sell uh, four KC-46 uh, tankers, 48 tankers, uh, to uh, the Israelis, which would actually provide them a greater capability to extend their uh, ability to reach Iran uh, if they were ever to, to strike Iran directly. And was that intended as a message to Iran that, you know, we're still going to support Israel? Or, or what is what was that supposed to be? Yeah, I think it's hard to take it as anything, you know, else. Uh, certainly a message. The timing uh, is, is considerable. The timing of the delivery of those weapons uh, would come uh, around the time that uh, certain key provisions in the JCPOA would sunset, uh, giving Israel that capability should uh, the, Isra uh, the Iranians choose to pursue nuclear weapons at that time. So I, I do think there is a message in there. What do we know about the timeline on these negotiations? Are, are we going to be expecting an actual agreement anytime soon? I don't think we know. I think we've been expecting an agreement for a long time. We've been sort of in a will they or won't they uh, for months. Uh, I think agreements kicked off really in April of 2021. Uh, things moved slowly because the Iranians went to a, an election. Uh, Ibrahim Rahisi, a hardline conservative, was elected in August 2021. Uh, and things moved slowly from there. Uh, and they've moved back and forth. So frankly, we don't know. All right. Well, we'll have to see. Thank you, you Jonathan, so much. Thank you, Mimi. <laughs> Coming next, the number of Americans dying from fentanyl and the amount being seized at the border is going up. How the feds can crack down on the Mexican and Chinese crime syndicates behind it. That's coming up next.
Mexico's drug cartels are behind one of the deadliest schemes operating in the U.S. They're mass-producing fentanyl pills and distributing the drug across the country. David Asher is a senior fellow with the Hudson Institute. David, welcome to the program. Thank you. I appreciate the invitation. So first explain what fentanyl is and why it's been so deadly to Americans. So fentanyl is an opioid analog, which means it has some characteristics of normal opium, uh, but it's been synthetically manufactured for really about 100, over 100 years. Um, it is a uh, drug, though, that in its synthetic form has between 50 and 100 times power of uh, natural grown heroin uh, or, or morphine. So we're dealing with an extremely potent um, toxic combination of the ingredients uh, biochemically of, of uh, heroin uh, and other opium-related drugs with um, sort of a boost effect that, that makes it very powerful. It's, it's been very helpful for people with cancer, uh, other types of dramatic pain injuries, uh, and it also creates a potent high that kills people. And, and that seems to be, unfortunately, where it's going these days. And how are Mexican drug cartels actually producing it? And what's China's role? Yeah. How are they doing it? Well, they're doing it because with the Chinese are sending in the precursor chemicals. It's, it's not that hard to produce it if you have the precursor chemicals. So chemicals are being manufactured probably 80 90% globally in China. Uh, and, and the other percentage is usually controlled by Chinese triads or gangs. Uh, organized crime groups. So, so one way or another, it's just a big tie in China. They put those chemicals together in a, a lab, labs which are increasingly run by Chinese chemists on loan from Chinese chemical companies to Mexican drug cartels. And you can produce, produce these at really quite a large scale. I mean, we had uh, uh, 50 pounds of fentanyl found at the border yesterday in your uh, LA. I mean, that's enough to kill hundreds, hundred. 50,000 people or something, maybe more than that. I mean, we're, it's, it's a very economic, powerful way to produce a toxic high. And, and that's why the so, cartels are doing I mean, David, is the Chinese government doing anything to crack down on, on these chemicals being used? You know, I, I was in the State Department. I worked with the Chinese on these issues. They did absolutely nothing for, in a reciprocal fashion. Uh, I've done that actually four times in my career. I've, I've worked with China on counter-drug cooperation. This is the most serious one in the last two years of the Trump administration. They didn't do a damn thing. I mean, I'm sorry. It was, it was, it was, we asked them over and over again. We get, you know, we got no cooperation, as everyone knows, over COVID-19 and its origins. But this area, they actually pledged cooperation in policing the fentanyl precursor chemicals. They banned them from being exported to Mexico, and then they didn't stop them from being trafficked. So basically, it was a big bluff on their part. And and do you think they're being uncooperative on purpose? Yes. Yeah, I think that I think they're engaged in what they view as a sort of covert action program, a reverse opium war, a way of using narcotics the way the Brits used against the Chinese to undermine their state and society and solidarity. Uh, they're trying to do that to us. And they're under, more or less underwriting the, uh, the, the the drug business for the Sinaloa and Jalisco cartels in the United States, trafficking this drug, which I talked to some detained drug traffickers about, and they told me normally they wouldn't be selling it because it kills so many of their customers. But with the enhancement of the Chinese providing a subsidy, uh, they're more than happy to do it. 
So I think there's definitely a willful act of state involved, unfortunately. And you've called this the largest money laundering scheme in the world. How does it work? Pretty simple. Um, Chinese students across the country get called by Chinese brokers across the country. And we're saying here Chinese, but we're really talking communist Chinese. And we're not talking kids who are of Chinese descent. So this is no pejorative sense of, of, of anti-racist or racist view of Chinese kids or anti-Asian or something. This is really weird. These are kids almost always on uh, work visas or education visas in the U.S. Or, or money brokers who are here on work visas. They coordinate the money pickup. So like $100,000 and it gets sold uh, of fentanyl-laced uh, 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 Oxycontin, let's say, in Flushing, Queens. You'll see, and I've, I've been up there and seen it myself, a kid walking down the street with a big Samsonite with uh, money in it. He'll drop that into a Chinese travel agency, which in some cases will be informed uh, or owned by the Chinese government. And they'll take it from there, and they'll invoice of this sale of tickets to China, even though no one's flying to China, and they'll pass the money back to the Chinese triad or, car or, car or cartel. So, you know, it's really late. That we literally are seeing four to five thousand students a week, uh, at least as of last year, being involved in picking up drug money and, for the and, city of And David, what what has the response been from the Justice Department, and and what more do you recommend be done? Well, I mean, have you seen a case on any of this stuff? It's remarkably low response. We had an investigation at the State Department, which is why I'm happy to talk about it. I mean, my my boss, Mike Pompeo, had no problem with us looking into this issue, we saw it as an act of foreign policy by China and potentially a violation of the Chemical Weapons uh, Convention. So we did our own investigation. But as far as the, the Drug Enforcement Administration and the Department of Justice, where are they? I don't know. I mean, it's, it's uh, this is, you know, State Department has some authorities. We could revoke, revoke the visas of those kids. We were thinking about it. But we're not the primary uh, aligned defense on this thing. I don't know where federal law enforcement is. They're doing a lot of things that uh, are, per are perhaps less important than this. There's 100,000 kids dying a year. All yeah, right. That's a, a big deal. All right, David. Appreciate you being on the program with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Stay with us. More Government Matters is straight ahead. We'll be right back. The Biden administration issued an executive order to update the social cost of carbon value used by the federal government. A new report finds that the cost is $185 per metric ton. Kevin Rennard is a fellow at the nonprofit Resources for the Future, a lead author on that report. He's also a former deputy associate administrator at the EPA. Kevin, welcome. Thank you so much for having me here. So first explain what the social cost of carbon is. Sure, the social cost of carbon is an estimate in dollar terms of the damages to society from an additional ton of greenhouse gases being emitted to the atmosphere. Our study looks at carbon dioxide, but there are similar metrics for methane and nitrous oxide. Uh, and when you say damage to society, what does that mean? What are those factors that go in, into it? Sure, in our study, we look at, at four. Uh, so temperature-related mortality, so increased risk of dying from high heat, as well as changes in costs of agriculture and yields, uh, as well as effects on the coastlines and also um, effects on energy costs. And you've been finding that things like mortality have been going up. 
because of climate change. That's exactly right. That is a, a well-known fact. And so what our study tries to do is to take those findings and put them into this framework to figure out sort of what are the costs associated with that. Is that something that can really be estimated? I mean, how do you know? I mean, you're, you're predicting the future. You absolutely are predicting the future. But what you're really trying to do is understand the uncertainty around the future. And that's what our study does, is to look at uncertainty in future economic growth, in population, in all kinds of things like that, bring in a climate model that's, that's up to the state of the science, and look at this up-to-date research on what's happening with mortality and in agriculture and coastal impacts and energy and figure out what the what the value is but also what the uncertainty is around that. So what uh, ultimate impact does this really have on federal government spending, on policies? Why does it really matter? Uh, it's a very influential metric because it shows up in a lot of different things that the federal government does. Um, for example, any time the federal government takes a major action, it is required by a long-standing executive order to do what's called a cost-benefit analysis. And so in that analysis, they try to take all of the different costs that might result from the action and all the different benefits um, and assess them against each other and make a decision that's informed by all of that science. So when we take the social cost of carbon, they're using that value as part of those benefits uh, calculations and they will make decisions accordingly. So your number came out to be $185 per metric ton. What is the Biden administration's number currently and why a difference? Right, so the Biden administration number currently is $51 per ton. It's actually harkens back to the Obama administration's number. They have just put it back in as an interim number while they are updating the science. Um, so they are going through a process themselves uh, through their own executive order to update their number that they will use in their analysis. And our research hopefully will inform, inform what they eventually do. Well, but this is alarming that it's over three times more. Certainly. So what what does that mean really for us? Certainly, so, so in terms of the difference as getting to your question. Uh, so the difference comes from a few different pieces. <clears throat> Some have to do with what we think is going to happen in the future in terms of what our economy might look like or what the population might be. It also has to do with what we think the state of the science is on these damages. And then one last piece is just how we value these future damages. Um, these damages from greenhouse gases stay in the atmosphere for a long time. They continue to accrue. And so how you tally those up and put them into sort of today's terms um, is a very important piece of the calculation. When we update the methodology for that, we find that that is a significant influence on the overall number. What's the process for officially updating that number since it's such an important number? How, what, what happens? How often is it updated? So, so the official process the federal government goes through is to set up what's called an interagency working group that now has, I think, 11 different agencies in it. And they get together and they pour over the latest science and they try to come to an agreement as to what the update should be. Then they put it out for public comment. Um, they take public comments. There's review and so on and so forth. And eventually they put out a final number that starts to get used within, within uh, official analysis. That process is going on right now. Um, the interagency working group was disbanded during the Trump administration, so it was reenacted uh, during the Biden administration and they've been spending the last you know year and a half or so coming up to speed on the latest science so that they can come up with an update of their own. So does that mean that your number is going to be become the number or how many other people are going to be involved in, in getting to that number? Sure. So so our number hopefully will will play a role in that number that they eventually adopt. But it will um, it, that will be up to the federal government in the process that they come up with. Um, I will say that the, the Biden administration executive order talked about this very influential National Academies report that laid out a whole set of scientific recommendations for the numbers. And we followed those recommendations. And so we're hoping that by having, you know, implemented those scientific recommendations by a nonpartisan third body of scientists, um, that the federal government will be more likely to, to take our numbers into account. So what, uh, let's talk about recommendations, right? And I know that your, your, your group just kind of researches and, and tries to do modeling and analysis. 
But what actual recommendations are, do you give to the federal government right now? Sure. Our, our recommendations to the federal government are sort of twofold. <clears throat> One is that they should account for the science that we are accounting for in, in the paper that we have just written. So update the science fully um, and taking our, our work into account would be an important step forward. The second is really on transparency. Um, for a number like this that is so influential, um, it needs to be not only rooted in the best science, but also based in transparent science. Um, and so the way that we have approached this problem is to have all of our source code for our models be completely open source so anybody can download it, can, um, can look at it, can evaluate it, and also can build on it um, so that the public knows exactly what we're doing and they can also take it and, and run with it. And Kevin, I know that you you know you work with climate change, and it's it's not really a happy topic. I, <laughs> I wonder how optimistic you are that we can really uh, that the federal government can make the changes necessary that that can kind of stem the, the, the tide, really, of, of what's happening with the climate. Well, I will say it is certainly a monumental challenge. It's the challenge of our generation uh, to move forward on climate change. And you need to shift the entire economy towards clean energy sources in, in lots of ways that are, are could be potentially sort of disruptive. Um, that said, I feel like the cost of those technologies have really come down in recent years. And the actions that the Biden administration has taken and the, and the Congress has taken um, to try to make those costs come down even more through the Inflation Reduction Act um, will also help to move us in that general direction. Once you get there, um, I think it's going to be sort of a snowball effect and it's going to be pretty rapid. And do you think that that social cost of carbon will eventually start to trend down? Uh, it's certainly possible. Um, the, the science is always evolving. And, and that's actually a really important thing to say about our study is that this is one important step forward. Um, but we're expecting this is the first step. And we will continue to evolve the science. Others will add their science to it. And the number will, will move forward as science evolves. All right, Kevin. Thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you so much for having me. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. You can reach us on Twitter at GovMattersTV. Follow us to get the latest updates, reminders, and links to our latest interviews. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016 and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high throughput satellites. And these are 
satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's going to be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.